begged me not to do this. I think it's nice sometimes in an upside down kingdom. <laughs> welcome, welcome. Uh, we've been um, speaking for the last couple of weeks on holiness, uh, which is obviously a, a massive and awesome and popular subject for all of us, and I can see all your faces lighten up at this moment. But um, Simon Ponsley says that holiness is an invitation. So the invitation to holiness is the greatest privilege offered to humanity. And if you were here last week, you'd have heard Dennis do an absolutely astounding talk uh, talking about how intimacy is, sorry, holiness is a call to intimacy. And he's wandering out, but I think we should give Dennis another round of applause. That was absolutely amazing. If you weren't here, I would just encourage you, you definitely need to check out the podcast. We record all of these talks and video them as well, and you can check them out on the website. And that is one you should take home for sure. Uh, De uh, Denzel. <laughs> as you can tell, John looks like Denzel Washington, a younger version. And uh, I, I do accidentally call him Denzel every now and then. Um, but he was talking about call to prayer. We love uh, praying as a church. And that call to intimacy is not just about us individually. It's about us corporately and together. So if you would like to join us on Tuesday, please do come along and, and pray that that would be the case. But, you know, I know what it's like when we leave church sometimes. You know, we, we kind of leave on a high. I mean... God says amazing things through whoever's up here, and it's just, you leave here going, I'm never going to be the same person again. I'm not going to do those things that I know are self-destructive. I'm just going to go and be the best I can be. And then you go into the world, and by Monday, you've just gone straight back to who you were. And some of you didn't even get home before you made mistakes and messed up. I didn't, anyway. Um, but, you know, I want to talk about that just for a second. You know, look, we have an enemy who doesn't want us to become holy and so we'll lie to you and tell you over and over again, you're not good enough. But do you notice, before you knew Jesus, before you knew God, he didn't really have much to say in your life. He didn't care that much what you were doing. But as soon as you were filled with the Holy Spirit, as soon as you met the Spirit of God, the Spirit of holiness inside of you, who is committed to making you holy, and he comes and highlights an area of your life that he knows is not healthy for you, and he wants to deal with it, and then suddenly the enemy's got a whole load of things to say about it, how you're a failure, how you're messed up, and how you shouldn't be doing that, and how God doesn't love you. It's an utter lie. I remember the day when I finally found out that I was incredibly selfish. With all the thanks to my wife for helping me find that out. <laughs> and she did it in a real gentle way, in all fairness, but she definitely helped. Um, <laughs> and I really genuinely thought, how could I possibly be any good to people if I'm selfish? How could I offer anything anyone could use? I might as well just lock myself away and just be selfish. And I knew that at that moment that the enemy was trying to say something, was trying to get in there. When the spirit highlights a weakness, it's because he wants to deal with it. It's always been there. It's not new. He just wants to deal with it now. He loves you. He accepts you. He knew it was part of you when he, when he invited you to follow him. He doesn't want to punish you for it. He wants, he's taken the punishment on the cross. He highlights it because he wants to deal with it and deal with it wholly. And so as Dennis rightfully said, you know, this is a place where we can confess and repent with one another. We can seek forgiveness. We can encourage one another in a loving way. Yeah, that's, that's actually not my talk. It's just, uh, I really build that on for Dennis. But let me just say this. Let me, let me just say Every time you encounter something that hits you, that affects you, that makes you feel you're less than you are, you can look at it as one failure after another. But I want to say that God's highlighted it because he wants to deal with it, and it's one victory after another. You are being transformed 
in his glory from one degree of glory to another. Let me just pray and then I'll move on with my talk. Father, I want to say thank you that you care so much about us. You care more about us than we do ourselves in many cases. And you are not willing to let little things remain in lives that we think we can work past. You want to deal with every single thing because it holds us back from being who we can be. You said you have made us holy in Hebrews 10. And yet in the same paragraph, you say that you are making us holy. You are transforming us into the likeness of Christ. And so, Father, I pray that prayer that in Psalm 139, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way and lead me into the way everlasting. Amen. Okay. Thanks. <laughs> so Kev, a couple of weeks ago, uh, was talking about, introduced a series on holiness and talked about how God is holy, is set apart, is majestic, is wonderful, is beautiful in so many ways that are way beyond our understanding and how we, in the light of him, are nothing. We're lowly. We're, you know, we are not holy in any way. And yet God calls us to be like him. And as I said, Dennis last week talked about holiness as a call to intimacy, a call to sit with him, be with him, walk with him, and receive from him. And today, what I want to talk about is what does it mean to be holy? You know, in the Bible, there's a lot of inanimate objects that God calls holy. There's uh, your tithe is holy. Oil is holy. Linen is holy. Do you know, even pots can be holy. And I don't know about you, but my insecurities come up and go, how does a pot get holier quicker than I do? I'm feeling a bit challenged here. How do they become holy? I mean, many people think to be holy is to be moral, is to be ethical. And how can a pot, how can oil be ethical? How can it be moral? Yet according to the Bible, according to Leviticus, it can be holy. How is that? Well, the answer is simple. To be holy, anything that was put into the temple... Anything that was put aside for the exclusive use of the service of God was called holy. In other words, to be holy means to be wholly devoted, to be set apart for God. And if you want to know what we're set apart for, then come back and hear Chris next week and I'll introduce him. And, uh, hear, <laughs> and be excited about that because that is one of the greatest privileges. The opposite to being holy is not immoral, it's not sinful. The opposite of holiness is common, is to be used by anything and everything for a variety of purposes. It's only because God is perfectly moral, because he's perfectly ethical, that we devote, as we devote ourselves to him, that we become likewise. You see, being good and moral is not the fruit, but the root of holiness. Is the, sorry, I got that wrong way around. Being, being good and moral is the fruit, not the root of holiness. It's about finding out for whose use you are devoted to. And so I'm going to use this passage from uh, 1 Peter. And if you've got Bibles with you, it's quite near the end, um, a few books back. And 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. It will come up on the screen. If you haven't got a Bible, we'd love to give you one. We have uh, loads at the welcome desk. You can pick one up on your way out. It says this, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, be holy, for I am holy. Holy means to be dedicated to God, devoted to God, wholly devoted 
And I want to look at two things of what that looks like, to be wholly devoted in mind and wholly devoted in heart. Let's start with the mind. In verse 13, it says, prepare your minds for action. To be holy, you need to prepare your minds for action. You need to use your brain. What Peter is saying is, you need to think rationally, to debate, to reason, to think of something with all the logic that you can muster. Think Sherlock Holmes. Think mystery novel. Or my, my level, think person of interest. Have you seen that show? Has anyone seen that show? One person, thank you, you're my friend. Uh, <laughs> it's a fantastic show. It's got that evil guy from Lost, if you know him. And it's got Jim Caviezel, who played Jesus in The Passion of the Christ. And they work together. See, Jesus is this former CIA agent, former CIA agent and he teams up with the evil Lost guy. And they build this machine, and it basically determines uh, a person's number, a person's name. They go after that person. And the part of the program is you don't know if that person that they're going for is a perpetrator or a victim. You don't know if they're going to kill someone or be killed by someone. And you get to join them in this wonderful saga of figuring out which one it is. But most importantly, what I love about the show is you get to see Jesus, Jim Caviezel. He gets to say the words, trust me, follow me, just like Jesus did. And then when they follow him, when they trust him, he shoots his way out and fights his way out, and it's utterly gory, and it's amazing. And just like the Jesus I know-ish. Anyway, I'm way more excited than you are, I can tell. It is utterly amazing. But anyway, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is this. When you watch something that can have an alternative ending, when you think that you know the outcome, it will surprise you if it's a good movie. It will surprise you if it's a good show, a good book, because it won't be what you think it is. But yet you'll look back and you'll realize you had all the information, you had all the clues to come to that outcome, but you came to the wrong conclusion. You were too affected by your prejudices to see with what is obvious with hindsight. Think sixth sense. What Peter's saying in this passage is saying, don't be deceived by your prejudices. Don't be fooled by your fears. Be wholly devoted to Jesus. You need to use your brain. Ready it for action. Now, this is countercultural because most people will say, well, faith is blind. It's trusting in something you can't see. And you know, you're just taking a kind of a step in the dark. And I've had people say to me, you know, I'm an educated person, so I don't really need God. In fact, when I became a Christian, I remember the first thing my uncle said to me. He said, you've become a Christian? Oh, no, I thought you were more clever than that. You know, it's amusing when someone says, I believe in science, so I can't possibly believe in God as if they're mutually exclusive. I mean, have you read um, Bill Bryson's book, Short History of Everything? So many people who make those momentous discoveries were Christians. A friend of mine who turned to his son when he came home from an RE lesson asking about God, he turned to him and said, look, buddy, you can either have God or you can have dinosaurs. You can't have both. And yet, listen to this. I have a friend who's an atheist, who's a, worked as an astrophysicist and a computational biologist now. And he'll say the majority of scientists, the majority of the people that he's worked with, believe in God. After all they've seen, they've concluded that this world cannot be purely by chance. And we cannot be simply insignificant mistakes and accidents. So my question to you is very simple. The decision you've come to, is it a considered decision? Have you weighed up the, the thoughts, the processes? If you've just believed what a family or friend has told you, then that's blind faith. 
If you haven't thought about it, investigate it. Ask those questions way up if Jesus is who he claims to be. As C.S. Lewis says, there is nothing more important than that answer. And a great place to do that is Alpha. Um, Jenna and AJ, as we just introduced, you know, they lead the Alpha in this place, and we've got a course starting in September. Check that out if you, if you want to. But for me, faith is not just a crutch that I lean on when I'm feeling weak. It's a considered and certain hope that I have tested and found to be true. And because of that, I am holy. And what I mean by that is, as much as I can, my mind is devoted to God. Faith is more than just thinking, but it's never less than. Let me give you an example. In Matthew 6, uh, Jesus says this. He says, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is life not more important than food, and the body not more, uh, more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. Look at the birds of the air. Think for a second. They do not sow or reap or store away in a barn, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Question, think, ponder, explore. Am I more valuable than a bird? And then he says, you have little faith. In other words, he's challenging those with little faith, those who are questioning, those who are doubting. It's a good place to be, but he's challenging them, saying, Use your brain. Devote it to me. When it looks like you should worry, when it looks like you should panic, devote your mind to thinking about what God, what I am like, what I have said, what I have done. Open up your Bibles. Ask people. Explore it. You know, several years ago, we were in um, temporary accommodation. And uh, as we arrived, this was a new accommodation that they'd, uh, they'd just uh, kind of acquired. And they didn't have an account reference number, so we couldn't pay them. And they said, look, just hold on to the money, and we'll give you the account reference number, then you can just pay it all in one go. And we kept on asking them and asking them, well, as long as we were there, could you give us the reference number so we can pay? And they hadn't generated it. Two years, one baby and a house move later, we suddenly received this letter in the post. You owe us outstanding rent. You need to pay it as soon as possible, and it's in the region of just over 2,000 pounds. That's kind of worrying. That's kind of panicking. Now, to be honest, we had spent the money by then, uh, which I'm not saying is a good thing, but uh, I'm just saying we had. Now, me and Tara, we sat down, we looked at our bank balance. Tara's my wife. We looked at my bank balance, and we laughed. We were like, we're no way we're going to be able to pay that. I thought, the only answer here is God's going to have to get us through in some way. You know, we've seen, we've faced enough difficulties, we've faced enough challenges and we've seen God do so many miracles that we know, that we think, we have considered that we do not need to worry anymore about money. And I'm not just saying that. I'm actually, we're actually in that place. We do not worry about money, which is, again, hilarious if you look at our bank balance. <laughs> so we prayed to God and asked him for help. You know, the next day, Tara had this great idea of contacting Christians Against Poverty Cap, who were absolutely fantastic, and they suggested filling out a form to achieve a partial concession. So we did that, and we filled it out with a covering letter saying, look, you know, how can we spread the payments, this, that, and the other? And we sent it off. And it took some time, but we eventually got a letter back, end of January or something this year. And they said, I'm really sorry, we can't accept the form. It's a different change of circumstances. But we've looked into the case, and we've realized it's our fault, so we're going to write off the debt. I mean, how utterly amazing is that? What I'm saying is, that's not the first time that's happened. And I'm sure it won't be the last. 
But we know, we think, we have seen God do it over and over and over again that we, when we get into those moments, we pause and we respond. Isaiah 55 says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God says, do you know why you're worrying? Because you're not devoting your thoughts to your, you're devoting your thoughts to yourself. Instead, devote them to me. Think of who I am. Think of what I'm like. You're so busy thinking how you can save yourself, how you can get in control of that situation, how you can make this or that happen. It's exhausting to be like that. You weren't made to be like that. You were made to depend on me. And if you trust me, I will come through over and over and over again. In other words, read the Bible. Understand my promises. Look at the clues. Use your brain. Prepare it for action. Don't be deceived by your preconceptions. Don't be fooled by your fears. Wholly devote your mind, your thoughts to me. That is what it's like to have a devoted mind. Now, a devoted heart. And it's important that we have a devoted mind, but we cannot stop there. A person who devotes their mind, their thinking, without actually devoting their heart, their actions, their life, we call them a hypocrite. To be wholly devoted is to wholly devote all of you, your mind and your heart. To have a devoted heart is to be focused. To be focused, to have a single goal. It says in the same verse, verse 13, say your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Have a single goal that you work towards. Imagine an athlete turns around and she says, you know, I'm, I'm going to go for the 2020 Tokyo Olympics. What does she need to do? She needs to devote herself fully to training. Anything less, you would say her heart's not in it. And so she devotes herself. Now, she does 10, 20 hours of training every, every single week. But that's, you know, it's not just that. It doesn't just do whatever she wants for the rest of the hours and eats donuts on a Sunday morning, as tempting as that is. Everything is about that thing. And that's not the only thing she does either. I can see you're giggling, some of you. I presume you've got donuts on the chair next to you. <laughs> and that's not the only thing she does. She has fun. She hands out with her friends. She goes on holidays. She you know, goes to the movies. She does everything she wants to do. But there's one key question. Is this going to affect my training? Is this going to affect my goal? And if it does, if it compromises, if it comes against the goal that I'm aiming for, then I need to ditch it. It needs to go because it's not going to fit in with the train of the life, the goal that I have. Everything she eats, her sleeping patterns, her work, her schedule, her activities, everything is determined by that training. Everything is made subservient to it. Anything else, ditched. So what's our goal as Christians? Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We live a devoted life for a future goal. We can enjoy the moment, but we don't exist for the present. Peter adds a further incredibly helpful uh, verse, uh, verse 17, when he says, Live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. What's a foreigner? A foreigner is someone who belongs somewhere else but is living in a different land. They're a citizen of another land. Another translation would say we're in exile. One day we will return. One day we will see ourselves home. But for now, we are to settle and make money here and enjoy here and live here. Remember that series we did on the city a few uh, months ago? And we quoted Jeremiah when it says, Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens. Marry and have children. Pray for the peace and the prosperity of the city. 
You're going to be here for a while, but it's not your final destination. Devote your heart, set your hope, your goal fully on the grace that we brought when Jesus returns. Do other things, enjoy your life, but make everything subservient to that one goal. And if it can't be subservient, ditch it. There's a letter that was written in the first or second century, really old. We don't know who the author is, but it's called The Letter to Diognetus. We don't, as I said, we don't know any other details about it, but this is what he says. He says, Christians busy themselves on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven, which I think is a brilliant quote. They're actively invested, but their sights, their hopes, their goal is for somewhere else. And then he goes on to say this incredible thing. This is, for him, a list of description of what makes us foreigners in this land. Listen to this. They marry and have children, but they don't kill unwanted babies. I'll come back to that. They are persecuted by all, yet they love everyone. They share their table with everybody, but they don't share their bed with everybody. They are poor and yet make many rich. They are short of everything and yet have plenty of all things. It says they share their table with all, but they don't share their bed with all. In our homeland, in our nation, in our country, we know that sex is a wonderful and purposeful gift of God. Given for marriage, it is totally and affectionately surrendering ourselves in full intimacy and vulnerability in order to continually renew a permanent, exclusive covenant commitment between two people. But so precious and so potent is sex that we don't share it or anything close about with it with anyone outside of marriage. We don't share our bed with all. Because of that, we look like foreigners here. Of course we do. I remember going to, uh, I was invited to foot, uh, play football with a bunch of neighbors the other day, and that's why I'm kind of walking around really stiff at the moment. But we all went to the pub afterwards, and you know, it didn't take long for half the guys started talking about strip joints and sex and all this other stuff. And I just sat there smiling. I was enjoying being with them, but I couldn't add to the conversation. And it didn't take long before I stood out, before I looked like a foreigner. Of course I look like a foreigner. I have different values, and that's... That's where it is. We live according to the values of our home country. Secondly, they are short of everything and yet have plenty of all things. The values in our home are that God is our wealth. And because God is our wealth, Christians don't care much for money or possessions. We've got next door, we just bought next door, and you could peer through some hole and round the corner if you want. And we are developing that for our youth and for our food bank, our feed and compassion ministries. I love when people ask me, where did you get the money from that, for that from? I love celebrating and seeing the look on their face when, when I say, do you know what? Every single person in the church loves what God is doing in that place, loves the idea of investing in youth, loves the idea of providing a place for the community that are in need. They have been willing to dig into their own pockets. We haven't gone for grants. We haven't gone for lottery funds. We haven't asked anyone for ever money. We have just dug deep into our own pockets and done it. We don't hold on to our possessions. Don't get me wrong, money's great. We love money. And don't get me wrong, you know, possessions are fantastic. I love having the latest iPhone. But we don't hold on to it as if it's the most important thing in our life. We are willing to surrender, willing to give it up for a bigger cause. Thirdly, we're persecuted, yet we love. Because in our homeland, we really forgive. In our home country, we know that it's possible for people to change. In this world, a lot of people see forgiveness as weak. It's like letting someone off the hook. We don't see that. 
We see the possibility of people's lives if they're given another chance. We don't want to punish people forever. We don't want to be punished forever ourselves. We have been forgiven, therefore we forgive. And then lastly, it says they don't kill unwanted babies. In the Roman world, a newborn infant was considered the woman's property and therefore could be thrown out, thrown into the river. I mean, how horrendous is that? Many families didn't want girls, and some just thought it was a financial inconvenience to have another child. And so what did they do? Just threw the baby out. Women were considered the property of men. The poor and slaves were considered the property of ruling class. Newborn infants were considered the property of the mother. And when their time, when their usefulness had expired, tossed out. Christians couldn't stand for that. We couldn't feel comfortable in that kind of world. And because the Christians kept on saying, no, we cannot do this. Every life has a value. In our home, every life has a value to life and freedom. Every, every life has rights. Every life has choices. Over the centuries, over the millennia, we have fought many battles to enlarge the circle of respected life and protected persons. We never gave up seeing value in people. We never wanted to see people marginalized and put aside. We always saw the best. We always saw the possibility, the potential in people, and we always wanted to bring them in. And to people, that looks foreign. But so be it. So be it. What does it mean to be holy? It means to devote your heart, devote yourself to a single goal, to live your time as foreigners, to set your hope fully on the grace of Jesus Christ, train for it, prepare for it, and make everything in your life subservient to it or ditch it. Value the lives of others, forgive quickly, be radically generous, be profoundly pure, use everything for the purpose it was created. Enjoy your life, but never take your sights off of the goal. That's what it means to have a devoted heart, to be wholly devoted to Jesus. Now, I want to finish with a story which I think paints the picture of devotion incredibly well. And the story can be found in 2 Samuel 23. I'm, I'm not actually going to read the story. I'm just going to paraphrase it. But you can go and read it yourself if you want. 2 Samuel 23. David has just become king. But his enemies, the Philistines, have risen against him. The last thing they want is for this king, this well-known king, this king of their enemy, to consolidate their armies. They know that they don't stand a chance once he does that. And so they immediately launch a campaign. They drive their forces into Judah. They are seeking to capture him and kill him. And they eventually, eventually take over the city of Bethlehem, David's home city, and surround it with soldiers. In the meantime, this forces David and a few guys out into the wilderness, out into the desert. With him are a number of what the Bible calls mighty men, a number of strong and skillful and experienced fighters, warriors. And then one day, under the very hot sun, David is sitting there, mourning the loss of his home, wondering if anything's ever going to change, feeling discouraged and overwhelmed, Wondering if God is ever going to take him home. And he sighs out loud, just like you would, you know, standing there and go, Oh, I really fancy a cup of tea. Oh, I wish I was home. And this is what he sighs Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Now, he probably wasn't even talking to anybody. 
There was a well there, otherwise they wouldn't have been able to camp there. So he didn't need for water. He was just thinking. He was sighing out loud, a longing. And that's all he says. That's all he says. He was longing for home. He wasn't giving anyone a command. He wasn't asking and making requests. He wasn't even asking for volunteers. He wasn't talking to anybody. He was just sighing deeply, a desire. And what happens next is utterly amazing. We're told that three of his mighty men who were standing quite close to him heard the sigh. And they didn't say a single word. They just looked at each other, nodded. They went off. They strapped the swords to the side. And off they went, crossing the desert. With the Bethlehem in sight up on a hill, they fought their way up the hill, defeating as many soldiers as would dare to attack them. Three guys. They broke into the gates of Bethlehem. Because that's where the world was. And this is a brilliant picture. There's one of them. The two of them are fighting everyone and anyone that comes near them. One is just casually filling up with water. (laughs) And then they get this water out and they fight their way out back down the hill. Anyone that comes near, they defeat them. And then they cross the desert with all this water on their back in the picture. And they refuse to drink any of it. And they eventually get to David. And they offer him, here's the water, they say, from the well of the gate of Bethlehem. We heard your longing, and we longed to fill it. Your longing is our desire. David was absolutely stunned as he looked at the water. And then something else happens. The Bible says, but he refused to drink it. He poured it out before the Lord. Far be it from me, O Lord, to do this. He said, is this not the blood of men who went at the risk of their own lives? And the story concludes that David would not drink it. And this is an amazing story, and it tells us two things about devotion. I'm going to finish there. First of all, the nature of devotion, total devotion to somebody, to be totally in love with someone means there is no difference between command and a longing sigh. You're close enough. You're near enough to them. As Dennis was talking about last week, we're intimate enough that you can hear their longings. They don't have to ask you to do something. You just know their want and you desire to fulfill it. Your longing is my command. You want to delight them. Devotion is not about a command. It's about responding to a desire. Could the band come back up while I just make this last point? When you read this story, we don't just see Jesus as David. We see Jesus as those mighty men. We see Jesus who broke through the enemy lines to bring us the water of life. He is our warrior king. He looks at us, and in John 17, he says these words, for for their sakes, I sanctify myself. In other words, I make myself holy for them. In other words, I devote myself, wholly devote myself for them. For your sake, I am set apart, he says, I am wholly devoted to you. He is the warrior king. When we were at the dinner table looking at our bills and wondering how we're going to do that, how we're going to pay this one and that one, how we're ever going to get out of this financial situation, we may not pray a prayer, but he hears our sighs. When you're in that interview and that job and they suggest that maybe there's some redundancies and you hear that, you panic, he hears that sigh with a doctor and some results that you don't want. When you're going into exams, you're not praying, but you just sigh. Or for me, I remember being in my bedroom and 
wondering what the heck I was doing with my life. I was messing up relationship after relationship. I was hurting people after people. I didn't seem to be getting on top of things. And I wondered, because I didn't know Jesus. I didn't know how to pray. I said, oh, my God, is anything ever going to change? Who's going to help me do this? The moment that he hears our sigh is the moment he's the warrior king. And he goes up the hill. He fights through the enemy lines to bring us the waters of life. Without Whoever drinks the waters I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. David thought the water that his mighty men was precious that they brought. It was their blood, he said. Well, Jesus' blood was poured out for us. We're not going to feel worthy. Because it wasn't at the risk of Jesus' life. It was at the cost of Jesus' life. He says, think about the price that I paid. Think about how I fought my way up the hill of Calvary. Think about the fact that I was pierced by many wounds. If you think enough about my devotion to you, if you set your heart, hope on me, you will become wholly devoted to me. He says, be holy as I am holy. Be different, for I am different. Be devoted, because I am wholly devoted to you.